I'm not going to be reading the whole chapter. It's well worth reading and meditating on. There are some verses in the 11th chapter of Hebrews that I'm just waiting to preach on, but I'm not quite there yet uh, to be able to do so. But I'd like to look at verses, specifically verses 24 to 26, but I'm going to read verses 23 to 28. So Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 28. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Let's pray before we look at this passage. Heavenly Father, take these words, your word. Use my words in explaining and applying them. And Heavenly Father, might we be changed in this process. For we ask these things for the glory of your Son and in his name. Amen. Some of you remember that sometimes I've preached a sermon about the real race. And one of the points in that sermon um, from Hebrews chapter 12 talks about what faith is and what it looks like. And to really know what faith looks like, faith in the real world, the best place to go is Hebrews chapter 11. It starts out with a definition of faith and then it proceeds on to show what faith really looks like in the real world. In the world of sin, and it, it all comes from the Old Testament. All comes from, from God's people before the cross. And it shows what we're supposed to do in living by faith. And I just want to mention three things that I find in this passage that I find a great challenge. And I know Michael and Ben are going to be finding out quite a bit about what it means to live by faith in the next couple of weeks. But I want this to be not simply for Michael and Ben, not simply for the Wegener family, but for every one of us who live right here in Bloomington. If you want to know what it means to live by faith, the first thing is you turn away from the world. You turn away from the world. If I were to give a definition of what Scripture means by the world or what I mean when I say the world, I can find no better definition than 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, where the Apostle John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Now the church throughout its history has taken those three things and has shortened them. And if you want to look at them negatively considered, 
their money, sex, and power. And I reflect quite a bit on those three things because in every culture, they find expression in our sinful natures and in our sinful actions. And I talk about this with the students that I am working with and teaching in Zambia. And we talk about money, sex, and power. And we're training Christian leaders at the school where I teach. And most of the Christian leaders who fall into unfaithfulness fall into unfaithfulness somehow related to those three aspects. Money, sex, or power. There's a lots of money that's being given by people in the West that goes to Africa and is unfortunately misappropriated. It happens every day. Our students bear the brunt of that. Sponsors, they find sponsors to sponsor their studies and then money is somehow misappropriated before it ever makes it to them to help them out with their schooling. I know I'll have occasion to speak with you at some point uh, in, in some context, but I'll talk about sex and about the temptations to elicit sex that are faced in Africa every single day. And the misuse of power is all over. Um, I could speak for a long time. But when we speak about turning away from the world, I'm talking about the world, meaning how money, sex, and power tries to tempt us and pull us and draw us in and allure us and cause us to stop following Christ. How did that work out in the life of Moses? Well, I'm not going to summarize the early chapters of Exodus, but I think most of you know the story. I do want you to forget everything that you uh, may have seen in that movie, I guess Walt Disney, but maybe it's not Walt Disney. I don't know who it is. What is it? The Prince of Egypt. Some true things in there, a lot of not true things in there. But you have the people of Israel down in the land of Egypt under Egyptian domination and their slaves. And they're multiplying. They're being fruitful and multiplying. And the Egyptians are scared to death. So the, the Pharaoh, the head of the land, the king of Egypt, says that the midwives are supposed to not allow male Hebrew children to be born. Well, I won't go into all the details of that story, but Moses was born by his parents. He was born, and soon after he was born, he was hidden. And again, I'm not going to go into the details, but soon after he was hidden, he was found. But there was his older sister who was watching over the baby that was found. And as soon as the daughter of Pharaoh found baby Moses, this sister, I must have been a very quick thinker, said, do you want me to find a nurse? Because it was known very quickly that this was one of the Hebrew children. And the daughter of Pharaoh said yes. And so Moses' mother was found. And so Moses was raised by his mother probably for the first few years of his life. Um, don't know exactly how long. Three years, four years, five years. Something like that. A very important time in Moses' life where he was raised in his family, taught the scriptures, and when I say scriptures, I'm well aware that there was none written, but the people of God passed on through oral tradition the story of the creation. 
the story of the fall, the story of God's promise to send a redeemer. And those were talked about, I'm sure, in Moses' home. And so at the appointed time, baby Moses was turned over by his parents to the daughter of Pharaoh, and he was brought up. Now Acts chapter 7, verse 22, says a little bit about how Moses was brought up. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it. There Stephen in his speech said, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Received one of the best educations available at that time in the world. Instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He not only was highly educated, he had prestige. Some ancient commentators on Exodus chapter 2 think that Moses was actually at this point legally adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and could have at one time come to the throne. But in any case, he had not simply education, but prestige and power. And he lived a life of luxury. Wine, women, song, all of that. All of that was Moses's. The historian, the Jewish historian Josephus says that Moses was a statesman and a soldier. He was an admirable man. The verse I read earlier in in, uh, Hebrews 11 said that he was a beautiful child. Many of the commentators are uncomfortable with that, but I think Moses was a strikingly handsome man. With that kind of a context, with that kind of a background, Moses made a decision. It says here that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, we don't know exactly when he made that decision, but most commentators think that he made that decision when he chose to intervene when an Egyptian was mistreating a Hebrew slave. And that was his decision. And by making that decision, he was choosing to turn his back on everything he had. The education, the prestige, and the luxury, he turned away from that. One writer on the book, on the life of Moses, mentions several things about that decision. The decision was made, according to this passage, by Moses when he was grown. It was not a youthful decision. It was a considered decision. He thought about it. He made it, and it appears when you read Exodus chapter 2, it was made like this. But according to this passage, it seems to me that it was something that he thought about. It was also, this decision was made when Israel was a despised nation. They were slaves. Just think of what that meant. Where did he live prior to this? He lived in a palace and he was choosing a hut. He lived in luxury. He chose privation. He lived as an honored person and he chose contempt. He lived in the company of the learned and chose, 
I'm not sure how I can put it, the company of the unlearned, the company of the ignorant. He had respect and he chose to be hated. That decision was also made when the pleasures of sin were most alluring. Moses was right then on the prime edge of manhood. And at that point, the pleasures of sin would have been most alluring to him. And he chose to turn his back on them. It appears to me also that he made this decision with firmness and resolve. He didn't try what so many of us, including myself, would try and do, and that is keep his foot in both worlds. It was a firm decision to turn his back on the world. Scripture is full of examples of men and women who have done this. I think of Joseph. And again, I'm not going to review the whole story, but Joseph was sold into slavery by his family in a horrible, horrible act. Can you imagine what Joseph felt like? And then he was sold to Potiphar and then he rose up through the ranks. And he said, ah, I thought God had turned his back on me, but now things are going my way. There was just this one problem. And that was the wife of his master was sexually attracted to him and kept pestering him every day, day after day. Lie with me, lie with me, lie with me. He didn't just say no once. He said it again and again and again. And finally, he said it for a final time, knowing again what that decision to choose obedience over the fleeting pleasures of sin would mean and that it would mean unjust suffering. That's what Joseph... Joseph had the same experience of Moses and I know that each one of you who are believers in Christ have faced decisions just like that. To walk by faith means you make those kind of decisions time after time after time. They don't make sense They seem ridiculous. But it's a decision to turn away from all... Now here I have to be a little bit... Amplify things more. It's not simply the sinful pleasures of the world. You turn away from legitimate pleasures. And that's what it means to walk by faith. And each one of us who is walking by faith today, you have to do that. That's the first point. If you're going to walk by faith, you have to turn away from the world. The second is you have to choose to identify with Christ. Some of you know that one of the things I teach at the college in, uh, in northern Zambia is church history. And one of the reasons I love that, love to teach that, is because you get to look at how the people of God have fared through history. And I'm always seeing lessons. There are certain characteristics that one finds among the people of God in all ages. Obviously, a common allegiance to Jesus Christ. Obviously, a common faith. Faith in Christ. Faith in the Heavenly Father. A common love for God's people and a common hope. But as Jesus said so often during his ministry on earth, 
suffering is a part of that package and that suffering over time takes on different forms. But it's there. It's there. I always think, and I talk to my students about the parable of the sower. People who initially respond with great joy to the gospel, but then when suffering and difficulty and affliction comes because of the word, they're gone. If following Christ is costing us nothing, then we're simply not following Him. That is clear on page after page after page after page from the Gospel. And it's expressed in different ways in different words. I want to note several things just about this decision. It was not only a turning away from the world, refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but it says here, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. What does it say there? Isn't that odd? It's talking about the reproach of Christ. It's talking about the people of God. I chose my words very carefully for this second main point. If you want to walk by faith, you choose to identify with Christ. And Moses did that. The only way I can express it is there is an undissolvable link between Christ and His people. And that's a people that were before Christ and after Christ. Not simply in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. But that link is there. And so Moses chose to identify with the people of God And choosing to identify with the people of God was choosing to identify with Jesus Christ because we are His body. And again, I'm well aware that this was written many years before the cross. But Moses chose Christ. And I think one of the implications for us today is very simple. That if you choose to reject God's people... That is a choice to reject Jesus Christ. If you choose to accept Christ, you also accept to be part of God's people with all of the joys and the sorrows that that entails. The arguments you get into, the fights you have to endure, the forgiveness you have to ask for, the forgiveness you have to seek, all of those things are part of living together as a family, as part of God's people. And Moses chose that. He chose that. He chose to be mistreated with God's people. The only thing I can think of is, it's, I get the idea, it's like something almost like, in verse 25, a ledger. On one side were the fleeting pleasures of sin. And on the other side was mistreatment with Christ and his people. And Moses said no here and yes here. Now, I have one student that I find it very difficult to relate to. He comes from a very different theological tradition. He's very intelligent, but we're constantly getting into arguments. One of those arguments was about this one right here where I was saying 
Men and women, don't let anybody tell you that sin is not attractive. And this man piped up and said, I don't find it attractive. Unfortunately, he comes from a tradition that says that it's possible to live a life above conscious, intentional sin so that no Christian who's had this experience ever chooses to sin. I think that's absolutely ludicrous, not only from a scriptural point of view, but also from an experiential point of view. But in any case, sin is attractive. If it wasn't attractive, none of us would find it alluring and tempting. But as the book of Revelation says in in a different context, it may be sweet in the mouth, but it is absolutely bitter in the stomach. And every one of us knows that. Many of us are the result of sinful choices. Many of us grew up in homes where sinful choices were made time and time and time again. And we feel the result of that. And you know that and I know that. And if you're going to walk by faith, you reckon things up and you say that the fleeting pleasures of sin, you count them as refuse and as dung and instead you choose to enjoy mistreatment identified with God's people in union with Christ. And that is far greater. So that's my second point. The third is, if you want to walk by faith, you focus on an unseen reward. You focus on an unseen reward. I'm always interested in why people do what they do. And in the context of where we live in Africa, there are a number of missionaries. And I'm always curious as to why people become missionaries. I like to know these things. And there's a huge number of reasons. Some people choose to go to the mission field because it's the only life they know. We have some friends who are third and fourth generation missionaries and it's the only thing they know. They would find it very difficult to function in a context where they weren't missionaries. Others are running away from failures. Others are joyfully embracing something that's difficult. Why did Moses make this decision? He turned away from something and he embraced something else. Why did he do that? And I think verse 26 gives us the answer. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Now, men and women, if if any of you have insight into what the reproach of Christ means, please tell me. Because I've been thinking about this for several weeks now. What is the reproach of Christ? I've come up with a couple things. Think of Christ throughout His life. Enduring misunderstanding, attacks, and suffering. Think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane, weeping and asking his father to let this cup pass him by because he knew the terror 
of what he was about to face. Think of the people who were mocking and insulting him while he was hanging on the cross. If you're really the Son of God, then come down. Think of how that must have been tempting to do that. The reproaches that Christ endured throughout his life, the reproaches that Christ endured on the cross, I think that's part of it. But I think it's more than that. And each one of you, if you choose to live by faith, you will be reproached for your faith in Christ. You'll be looked down upon. I can think of one of you in this room who made a decision to embrace the reproach of Christ and it cost you thousands of dollars to get out of a business deal with a non-believer. The reproach of Christ comes to us when we every day have to say, I choose to live by this book, to live in obedience to Christ, to live in in identification with the people of God. That costs you. And it doesn't simply cost Michael and Ben who could stay here and be successful in almost anything they chose. It's not just them, it's each one of us. It's each one of us choosing the reproach of Christ. That's part of it. Then the last part of the verse says, for he was looking to the reward. Why did he do what he did? He was looking to the reward. Why would you do that? Why would Ben and Michael turn away from this kind of stuff? These verses don't tell everything. There are a number of reasons I haven't even mentioned. The beauty of Christ, the truthfulness of the Gospel, the authority of Scripture, many other things. This verse talks about that Moses did what he did because he was looking to the reward. What is that reward? Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of it in different ways. Sometimes it calls it, calls it a better country. Sometimes it calls, it's called a better city. Sometimes it's simply called Christ. Sometimes it's called heaven. And that's why he did what he did, but that was unseen. And I'm always struck by that... Uh, Um, that word unseen in the first verse of this chapter. Now faith, how does that go? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Men and women, we understand only a degree, to a degree, what is going on around us. I don't understand why the African church is in such a state. I don't understand exactly why Africa is suffering so much for AIDS. I don't understand why the well-intentioned efforts of rock stars and governments and many Western Christians 